Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Rachel Balkovic. Rachel is a minor league hitting coach for the New York Yankees and has worked in professional baseball for seven years. She is the first woman to be a full-time strength and conditioning coach and also the first woman to be a full-time hitting coach in the history of professional baseball. She's also the host of the Theta Wave podcast and along with Jen Widerstrom, provides female executive mentorships for up and coming women in every industry. Rachel is a highly sought after speaker and mentor. I am honored to have the chance to share her brilliance and insight into resilience with Get Up Nation. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was quite the mouthful there. You got, you, got, <laughs> you did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's an absolute honor to speak with you today. As you know, the Get Up Nation show was inspired into being by one of the most unique and inspiring stories in the history of Major League Baseball, where Adam Greenberg was hit in the head by a 92-mile-an-hour fastball during the first pitch of his first plate appearance. And the book follows him through seven years of struggle and trial that led him back to the Major Leagues. You also have one of the most awe-inspiring journeys in Major League Baseball, and I'm so honored to have some time to share with my amazing listeners your journey. Will you share a little bit about your childhood and some of the memories you have of first experiencing a passion for athletics? I guess out of the womb, you know. Um, (laughs) My parents did a really good job of, we, I have two sisters, and they really raised us to be strong and capable women, and a really powerful vehicle for all of us to, through that journey was through sports. And so, I mean, my, my mom grew up in a really small farm town in the sixties in Nebraska. So there were no opportunities for women in sports at the time. So I always like say, God bless her because she took us to all of our games and all of our events. And she did not know anything about sports and definitely not competitive sports and competitive sports for women. And meanwhile, my dad, he was the breadwinner as a pretty traditional home in that way, where my mom did a lot of the shuttling of kids and kind of worked part-time and full-time throughout the years. And my dad was away at work. However, my dad was like always super supportive of us. I would say more of the intangible ways of, he just never let us, the the typical stuff, you know, he was like, he didn't yell at us for crying in in an embarrassed way. He was like, you're, you're stronger than that. You know, like you, he wouldn't let us complain about stuff. And he was just very much, he treated us like we were athletes and like we were capable people not like we were a little boy or a little girl, just that he wanted us to be able to face adversity and boy, did it help me. So <laughs> he's, he's kind of the dad that you might relate to this because you mentioned you had daughters, but people, when they find out he has three daughters, they're like, oh, three daughters must've been really hard. And he's like, oh, maybe you should Google my daughter. <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, you don't know because he really, really put, he really intentionally raised us to be strong-minded strong in our bodies, confident about our bodies, understanding 
the purpose of our bodies and being, you know, in, in work and athletics and in even carrying children, just the importance of our bodies from a physical standpoint and not, you know, from a sexualization standpoint. I mean, my parents were rock stars. Like they just set us up to be really successful women and all three of us. It's not just me, right? Like my other sisters are also very strong-willed and capable. Yes, that's excellent. Can we talk about some of the no's that you experienced? There there had to be situations where you were told that because you're female, you couldn't do certain things. What were some of those messages and how did you persevere to overcome those barriers to become the trailblazer that you are today? Many no's. <laughs> um, yeah. Starting with just the idea, you know, it's funny how it's, it's terrifying actually to think about how many people said that I couldn't do it, that I couldn't be even working in professional baseball even people who were close to me at the time, you know, my boyfriend and, and even like college advisors and which at the time you think your college advisor is there to help you live your dreams, but they're actually a college advisor. So they are probably not even living their dream. <laughs> and so it's like part, you know, it's hard for when you're a young person, like, I just think it's crazy how many times I was told you can't do this. You won't belong. They won't respect you way, way outweighed the people who were positive. In fact, it's hard for me even to remember many people who said that, oh yeah, that's a great idea. You know, in the same way that if a man would have said, Hey, I want to work in professional baseball, they'd be like, Oh, that's cool. What team do you want to work for? Whereas when I say it, it's a, you can't do that. They're not going to respect you. It's not going to work. Those kinds of things. So when I was first getting going for sure, even this last time around, when I said I wanted to be a hitting coach and I wanted to transfer from strength and conditioning to hitting, I had spent three years with the Astros and had learned extensively their system of hitting and pitching. And long story short, I would like to be a general manager. And so I see that as a way of me getting on-field experience as a, as a coach is going to be really important for me to be successful as a general manager. And I just, as I was telling people, I was like, oh, how are you going to do that? How are you? And I just remember thinking like, you're talking to the first woman strength coach in the history of all of men's professional sports. And they still wanted to tell me I couldn't do it. It's just now, this is an important lesson. It's not like, oh, I became a strength coach in professional baseball and then everyone started believing in me. Yeah. It actually has taken until just right now, after eight years of working in, in men's professional sports and knocking down two big walls of being a strength coach and also a hitting coach, it's just now that when I say I want to be a general manager, people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I'm like, finally, you know, I don't have to defend <laughs> myself. Eight right. years, you know, eight years, they finally believe that I'm going to do what I want to do. And so it, it's your, I think it's just an important lesson and important for people to hear. It doesn't matter what you want to do. If it's not the normal nine to five, Yeah. I mean, and you're talking to people who are working normal nine to fives that can't possibly fathom that. Yeah. They're not going to tell you, oh yeah, great, go ahead and do that. They're going to tell you all the reasons why you can't because they're just, you know, basically vomiting their own insecurities and disbeliefs in themselves onto you. So one good piece of advice there is just like, be careful who you talk to. Yeah. And then sometimes the only person you can listen to is yourself. Yeah. You, you applied for, for positions with your real name. You got no response. When you applied for positions using the name Ray, you did get responses. And then you got the phone calls that were, you know, taken aback by the fact that you were female. You described that because you were discriminated against, it forced you to work harder. And you appear to have reframed that discrimination as a challenge you sought to overcome. For those who are struggling with finding the positive in situations where they are being discriminated against, what advice or guidance do you have for them? I, I just, I just deeply believe that being an underdog is an advantage. And 
my advice to women, you know, and just to anyone really who, like you said, anyone who's struggling with something is like, don't complain about it. You know, you should, you should be like, wow, this is such a good, this is great for me. Mm. Cause the longer you're held down, the more you have to struggle when you aren't held down and you do finally, you know, get over that hill, whatever that hill is for you, you're going to be so much better off than your peers, your colleagues, your competitors. And so even the journey alone, even if you don't make it, the journey of being held down and held back and being an underdog is so valuable for your development as a human being and how you perceive other people. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I was discriminated against. It made me work harder. It made me, it made me understand the level at which I needed to perform as a coach, the level at which I needed to know my information and be able to communicate it. It made me so critical of, of every move that I made. So it made me better. And then now, even now it's like, man, I get in and I look at my colleagues and I'm like, damn, like you didn't have to fight that hard. Mm. So I'm better off for the fight that I had to go through as a professional, but also just as a person. So I just always say like embrace that. And as, as, horrible as it might be in the moment, if you can just look, you know, take a step outside of yourself and look at the situation, you'll be grateful for it. You're the first woman to be a full-time hitting coach in the history of professional baseball. What was it like in 2014 being hired by the St. Louis Cardinals as the minor league strength and conditioning coordinator and later working for the Astros, the Dutch, and the first day you put on Yankees pinstripes? Is it bittersweet? Is it satisfying? Is it at this point, is it just another day for you? Like, how, what's the emotion? You know, that was a, I just got, yeah, I just got the chills thinking about it because it was a really special, like just getting to that point of being hired as a hitting coach was actually a whole nother hurdle. Like I had been a strength coach for six seasons in professional baseball. I decided to go back to school in Europe at the end of the 2018 season. So I was in double A with the Houston Astros. They had just won a world series. Like they're a powerhouse right now. I, I mean, cheating, not cheating, whatever, like they're that organization did some really important things in baseball and it was an incredible time to be part of that organization. And then I just quit with that team and <laughs> moved to Europe, gave up pretty much my entire life savings that people at age 30 usually put down on a house. I put towards a second master's degree and moving across the world and everything that comes with that. And it was a huge risk, you know? And so I didn't know if I was, first of all, everyone was telling me it was going to be hard to get a job in general if I left for a season, let alone to cross over to being a hitting coach as a woman, you know? So Yet again, there were these people that were like, don't do it. You're just going to be so hard to get back in. And not only did I leave, but I really left and went to Europe where baseball is not super popular. I won't get into that, but it was pretty calculated risk at the time. However, like that whole year of just being alone in the Netherlands, it's definitely not, you know, it's not a rough country to live in. It's a first world country. The education's high. It's clean. But everyone speaks Dutch. I was, you know, they speak English too, but they speak Dutch first. Everything's in Dutch. And so you're just lonely. You know, it was a really, it was a really like, I would say dark time. It was hard for me to do that. And so I didn't know if I was going to have a job, let alone as a hitting coach and moving back, moved to Seattle, working to do research for six months. Again, just, it was a battle. It was a battle. And so I think when I got hired and finally showed up to spring training and there was a uniform there, I just like, I just thought of all the decisions and all the things that I've done in my life. And then furthermore, thinking about like there's a Yankees uniform hanging in my locker as a woman for me to put on, like, what did my, what did my grandparents think about this? You know, it's just like, what, how, how far have we come where I mentioned my mom earlier? Those are the reflections that went through my head. It's like my own mother 
didn't even have an opportunity to play sports. And here I am coaching men's professional sports. Yeah. That's, that's one generation. Wow. Unreal. Just, yeah. You have two master's degree. You learn from some of the finest minds in baseball, some of the most credentialed experts on the planet when it comes to eye tracking and eye movement. What is it like to see the world through your eyes as you notice the details of human movement through your day and deploying your expertise to help some of the most elite athletes on the planet operate at a performance level very few human beings will ever experience. How satisfying is that for you to take somebody who is an elite athlete and take them even further in their skills and talents to, to make contact, to get the hit, to excel in their game? What is that feeling like for you? Mm, a couple of things that come up for me there, just like first and foremost, I should put it out there that I don't care about baseball. And uh, I don't care about making people better at hitting a ball. My main passion in life is, is organizational culture. It's improving the human experience, using sports as a vehicle to develop young men and young women. And that is my actual passion. The other like tools that I have that allow me to do that job are you know, my degrees and my experience and my technical expertise and all those things. Yeah, like those allow me to work in professional sports and do the actual job that I'm here on this planet to do, which is to positively impact young people's lives and develop young men. And hopefully they become better teammates and better husbands and fathers and all, all of the above. So that is my actual, you know, and, and that feels great. You know, that's, that is incredible when you can make an impact on somebody's life. And that happens at the youth level, happens at the high school level. You can be a college coach. Like, I don't think that I'm different than a high school coach. In fact, a high school coach might even have a more important job than me, you know, but that's why within professional baseball, I actually really enjoy and prefer working with our younger players and specifically our Latin American players who are, you know, we sign them when they're babies, they're 16. Some of them don't have a high school degree and they come to us and they're professional athletes. And it's like, that's a lot to manage. So that's, that's why I'm here on this earth is the, the human development. And the baseball stuff is just like, for me, it's kind of a means to an end, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. I'm an expert in the baseball arena so that I can do my real job. At rachelbalkovich.com, you write, the worst possible thing that could happen is I could look back on my life and say that the only thing I did for the world was to make a few athletes stronger in the gym or better at hitting a baseball. You've described that baseball is the vehicle. That's your main goal to empower people. When your time on this earth comes to a close, what do you want? your reservoir of memory to contain? I think about this all the time. I think about like, if I were to die today, am I satisfied with what I've given to the world? And I am like, I don't know. I don't, I really literally don't know many people of anyone who have like really taken advantage of the opportunities that have been given to them and the gifts that they've been given and all the unique experiences that make up any human being. I have lived out my purpose to the fullest. If I die today, I have lived out my purpose. Like, I hope that I get to continue living it and building it and contributing to the universe more and, and empowering more young women and people. And I hope I get to continue doing that. But if I die today, I've already done it. So I would just say like, yeah, I, I would hope that when I die, I'm remembered as, or I'm, I'm looked at as somebody who used all of their unique gifts, whether that's God given or by my parents or by my coaches or by people who've given me opportunities to work in professional sports. I hope I've done right by them by maximizing all of the gifts that I've been given in order to improve the lives of others. 
You've mentioned how travel and training are two of the most powerful mechanisms of personal growth for you. I don't know how many languages you speak. You speak at least Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. You speak yeah, just two. Just two? Just okay. two, yeah. Okay. Will you share how these two mechanisms of personal growth, of that training and that travel, have positively impacted you and how others can use training and travel to help them grow? I mean, training is just the, like, we live in such a comfy world, you know, like we're on a Zoom call right now. We're, I'm in a living, you know, it's like, what are we doing? Our life, our lives are so easy compared to even what our parents were. And I'm sure, I'm sure our kids, you know, will, they'll have it easier than us. And it's just like, it's insane how comfortable our, comfortable our world is. My own father worked in a factory with his grandfather who worked in a factory for his entire life. My dad worked in a factory with with him until he was 25 and got a more white collar job, I would say. And it's, it's like we, the blue collar jobs are either going away because of technology or they're being passed off to immigrants. And so we live in this just comfy, comfy world where our bodies aren't challenged. And so I just view training as like, it's the most natural thing in the world. And it's what we used to just do in our lives, but now we have, we've stopped doing that. And so we stopped challenging ourselves from a physical standpoint to where we're not even tired. People have trouble sleeping and they have anxiety. They can't sleep. And I'm like, well, we're not moving, you know, so movement is a huge part of just my, it's, you know, of course it was my profession for 10 years, but it was my profession because I believe so strongly in the powers of how it can shape the mind and the body. And I mean, just every day I try to challenge myself physically. And that could mean anything from, you know, I just walked five miles with 20 pounds in my backpack, you know, or I'm lifting heavy weight or I'm, it's just, whatever the challenge is, it could, could be anything and it could be something different for everyone out there. But I would just encourage people to look at training as the easiest way that you can test your mind and your body every day, because we don't, we don't regularly get put in those situations anymore because of, because of our lifestyles. Now, second thing was travel. And it's just like, I, I would say creating time and, and space for reflection and when I say travel, like I don't go to, to Cabo and sit on the beach, you know, like I intentionally seek out, things that are going to challenge me again. So I just car camped in Southern Idaho for the past two nights and I was out in the wilderness and just kind of by myself and sleeping in my car. And it got down to the twenties and it was phenomenal. It was a great time. And it's just something that's going to make me learn. So when I travel, it's, it's not that I don't enjoy traveling. I thoroughly enjoy it, but I also make sure that my travels are creating reflection and creating growth and something to learn in every expedition, I guess. So that could again be as simple as car camping in Idaho, or it could be like going to Laos and spending three weeks in a village, which I've also done. That really stretched me as a person and, and opened my eyes. So I just use those experiences, just like I spoke about the Netherlands. Like, I don't think that vacation is going to another place where you can be on social media and watch TV and sit on the couch. I think, I think that vacationing is truly removing the inundation of constant information and noise and talking and just words, you know, just, we, we just have so many opportunities to over inundate ourselves with information. I think a vacation could be in your own home if you just shut everything off and start to listen to your thoughts. And so allowing space, mental space for those thoughts to come up to the surface of what do I want to be doing? How do I want to be living my life? How do I want to talk to my wife? How do I want my wife to talk to me? How do I, you know, what should I be doing with my life? Just answering life's questions takes some time to reflect. And you've met some tremendous people in your travels and share their journeys to peak performance on your podcast. It's called the Theta Wave Podcast. 
On ThetaWave, you described that you have always been fascinated with the routes that people take to reach peak levels of performance through taking the path less traveled, having a vision that no one else could see, and adding an insane work ethic to that vision to get to their end goal. These people seem to be operating at a different level of consciousness than the rest of the population, possibly in the flow state. ThetaWaves are the brainwaves that are typically associated with the flow state. Such killer content available there. Tell us more about the show and how ThetaWave can help others achieve their peak performance. Yeah, the podcast is just, I would say it's a passion project where I just love hearing people's stories. And, you know, I, I just appreciate it's obviously my path has been pretty just unique. And I appreciate hearing other people's stories of struggle and strife and why they kept going and what was really driving them in those moments of distress. And I think those stories need to be heard more. And so I specifically seek out people, not just that are successful, but have had particularly winding and rocky roads, which most successful people have had, but I'm not interested in the athlete who just was talented. You know, I would like to hear the athlete, like you said, who got hurt and and had a treacherous seven year journey back to the big leagues. Like that's what people relate to the most, you know, even though these athletes are probably the most covered ones because they're just so successful and it's like this anomaly, but that's really unrelatable. What's more relatable to people is like, I was about to quit and I didn't. And here's why. And here's how I got through it. And that's something that I think that everyone can relate to, honestly, on a daily basis, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in times when you've been overwhelmed, you mentioned before, you know, going out, going to Europe, taking your savings and leveling it and putting your faith in something that basically only you could see or understand. I mean, truly, you know, the trailblazing path of you being true to your calling, even when nobody else understands it. So when you've, when you've experienced maybe times where you've been tempted to be overwhelmed or when you've been, you know, kind of in a dark spot where your mind starts playing tricks on you, wonder, asking you, what am I doing? Is this the right choice? And when people are, are dogging you or, or criticizing you for that, how do you respond in those situations to get back up, to continue on even when things are uncertain or difficult? I think it comes down to a couple of things. Like I, I know my purpose. And so I just, I mean, I can remember definitely when I was in Amsterdam, I mean, I'm 10 years out of school and I'm studying like neuroscience and physics. And I just, it was, and I wasn't even good at those things in college in general. And so it was definitely a wild ride, a very, very difficult program for me. And I'm just like, I remember distinctly one time where I'm like, I thought I was going to fail this test. I was studying for an exam the next day and I was studying at my apartment and I just put my head down on the table and I just was like, I'm going to fail this. Like, I, there's just no way I can figure this out by tomorrow. And I was really stressed about it. I put my head down on the table and I pulled my head back up and an email had popped into my inbox from a young woman. And she was like, you inspire me so much and blah, blah, blah. And, and little does she know I'm on the other end of this computer in Europe, just like, I'm going to quit. Like, I can't do this anymore. And so like, little does she know. And I just like, it just is a reminder for doing something outside of yourself. And it makes it so much easier. It's easy to quit on yourself. But when you know, there's somebody out there who's like, not relying on you, because that woman wasn't relying on me, but someone that's, that's looking up to you, that's counting on you, that is keeping you accountable to your purpose. And if my purpose really is to make the biggest impact that I can, then I have to do it. You know, it's no longer a choice of mine that I'm like, well, do I want to do this or not? It's like, a, okay, I am committed to this for somebody else. And so definitely reaching deep and finding, you know, and clinging tight to your purpose. A lot of people that's family, you know, but the other question is, well, how do I find my purpose? I think actually everyone has a calling. I truly believe that everyone has a calling. 
some people don't know it. And then if the, the other thing is, is like some people know it and they don't act on it. They go to their normal job every day and they don't live out their passion and their purpose. Right. So the question is, is like, well, how do I, I mean, what if I don't know what my calling is? What if I don't know my purpose? Well, that's why you spend time by yourself. And that could mean, like I said, going to a village in Laos and reflecting and meditation, but also move, you know, like when you're a young person, go to college away from home, get out of your friend circle, get out of the circle that knows you as you, who you are in that moment so that you don't, you aren't attached to that identity. Get out of that friend circle, move away, be by yourself, you know, and by that, I just mean like, be in a situation where you can't look to your left or your right and go, oh, hey, who do you think I am? Oh, okay, let me write that down. Okay, that's who I am today. No, no. Get away from that person and go be able to find out who you are by listening to your own thoughts and not having everyone else feed you your identities because that is a real dangerous place. And then you're never going to know what your real desires are. And it could be as simple as they can't travel by themselves. And then they're like, they go on these trips and the trip is about everybody else and not what they want to do. They're like, Hey, what do you want to eat today? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do tomorrow? What do you want? How about you just ask yourself what you want to do? And you might actually surprise yourself with the answers. That's a great way to lead into our final section of the show. I always ask six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. And will you run through these six quick questions with me to help people understand how they might find the greatness within themselves? Of course. All right. Who are you thankful for today? My parents and my parents and Dylan Lawson, who is a mentor and the guy who hired me with the Yankees. And now that we covered who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? My conviction and my health. How do you fuel the fire within you? That, yeah, my, my purpose, other, other young women, the players I work with, the game, the future of the game. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? Being the underdog. Adversity taught me to value adversity. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Being a hitting coach with the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> and what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? I'll be a general manager, not tomorrow, but I'll be a general manager in the future. And I'm not going to say I never thought I could do that, but it's something that's come up recently that I've realized that, you know, why can't I do that? How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? RachelBalkovec.com, or I'm probably on Instagram more than I am anywhere else, but I'm also trying to reduce my social media. So I would say my website is the best place to go. Mm-hmm.